Please be seated and let's turn to God's Word, to the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1. This is a book that, uh, I think this is is an uh, amazing book, it's like the Bible itself, the Bible is an amazing book. Uh, You get a misunderstanding about the Bible if you think it's a self-help book. Or if you think it's a book of visions, the Bible's not even a spiritual book. Or people come to the Bible and go, oh, it's very spiritual. No, it's not. Because when you use the word spiritual, it means nothing. Uh, You have to explain what you mean by spiritual. The Bible's not a moral code book. The Bible is a book about God. And it's a book that tells us what God has done. It's a book at which God is at the center, not us. It does tell us about ourselves, but in relation to God. Yesterday, some of us were discussing the point that the Bible was written for us, not to us. And that's very, very important uh, because here we have a book that was written originally by Jeremiah, a young Jewish man whose ministry began, we know, 2,636 years ago. We know exactly to the year. It was written to Jews who were about to be taken into exile in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. Jeremiah was not writing thinking, this is for the people in St. Peter's, Dundee, Scotland, in the year uh, 2010. Nonetheless, God so inspires his word. We believe the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God in such a way that the word that was to the Jewish people over two and a half thousand years ago is God's word also to us today. But for us to be able to understand it and grasp it, we need to understand the context in which it was written and pray that the Holy Spirit will take and apply it. So if your inclination is, well, unless it begins with my name, it's not for me, you're misunderstanding completely. And whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, I'd ask you uh, to listen to what this has to say and we'll see how it is the word of God to us. So let me read Jeremiah 1. Uh, We'll read the whole chapter. The words of Jeremiah, it's on page 755, sorry, of the Pew Bible. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anahoth in the territory of Benjamin. The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, When the people of Jerusalem went into exile, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north, I answered. The Lord said to me, 
From the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set upon their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshipping what their hands have made. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, I want to um, give you, as we go through Jeremiah, we'll, we'll give you more and more background as we go on. And so, uh, but I want to give you just a little bit in terms of context. Uh, this is the 13th year of King Josiah. King Josiah is a young, young man. He's a teenage king. And you have two young men. My impression of Jeremiah was he was an old guy. I, when I read Jeremiah, and I've read Jeremiah many, many times, I really struggled to get anything from it, uh, to be honest, until about two years ago. And then it really began to speak to me in lots of ways. And I've kind of been building up to actually preaching through it, trying to understand it and grasp it. But one of the things to understand is I had this image of Jeremiah as being an old man somewhat miserable, to be quite honest, fairly depressing. Uh, There's a lot in the book that's quite heavy. He's actually a young guy. When this happens, he could even have been as young as 12, though most people think he was about 18, 19, 20 years old. He's a young man, and another young man is actually the king. Now, his ministry goes through the end of the book to, uh, to the fall of Jerusalem in 587, about 40 years it's a bit like watching the film Titanic. You know what the end result's going to be. You know, you're standing in the queue and for the cinema and someone says, guess what, the ship sinks at the end. Um, doesn't it really spoil the plot for you? You know that that's going to happen. Well, when we go through this, as, as, some of, as you go through, Jeremiah, some of these chapters you're thinking, okay, these are warnings, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. It did happen. Judea was wiped out and... The Jews were, most of the Jews were taken into exile in Babylon. Now imagine that. You're a young man, 20 years old, let's say, and you are told you're going to have to stand up and give this message, and you're going to give this message for 40 years or more, the whole of your life, and the very people who should be listening to you, the church, they're going to reject you. The kings of Israel, they are going to reject you. He prophesied under the five last kings of Judah, Josiah, I never get these names right. Josiah is easily enough. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiashin, and Zedekiah. I, I know people have a desire to name, give their children biblical names. Don't go with the last four. <laughs> it's really not fair. <laughs> Josiah's great, but the rest maybe not. This is really well-documented history. Again, if you're not a Christian, sometimes you hear an impression that's given in our culture. The Bible's just made up. It's just myth. It's just written by a bunch of illiterate shepherds. No, this is history. We have this documented. We, I mean, we're going back 2,636 years. And insofar as we know anything historically, 
We, we know a great deal about this. We know about the surrounding culture. We actually know more about what happened in Jeremiah's time than we do about any other part of the Old Testament. The northern kingdom had, uh, of the rest of Israel had fallen to the Assyrians. Israel had somehow survived in the end of Isaiah. You have King Hezekiah initiating reforms, but these have been nullified by the apostasy of his son Manasseh and then the reign of Amnon. And you read about that in 2 Kings. Yahweh, um, uh, Jeremiah himself, his name means Yahweh exalts. He grew up in a priest's home just outside Jerusalem in a village called Anathoth, about three miles to the north of Jerusalem. He would have read Hosea's and Isaiah's prophecies, particularly Hosea's prophecy. There's a lot of that in Jeremiah. And he would have been aware that he was part of a nation which, although they were God's covenant people, had largely given themselves over to sexual immorality, greed, and idolatry. There was a new young king on the throne, King Josiah. He'd been on the throne for 12 years. The reformation of Israel did not begin until his 18th year, which was the fifth year of Jeremiah prophesying. And what had happened was that the word of God had largely disappeared from Israel. When Deuteronomy was discovered, almost by accident, people didn't know. God's own people did not know God's own law. It was such a shock to them. And yet, God had insisted that his word should be kept at the heart of the temple, and it wasn't. So that's the context. I want to do a little bit more about the context. There's a wee video. Um, I want you to see. I found this really, really helpful. Let's see if we can put that up, uh, if we've got it. This one here. Right, watch this. Um, it's, it says common era, but never mind that. That's the kingdom of Egypt. It's the history of the Middle East. That goes to the Hittite Empire. This is about Abraham's time. This is the extension of Israel. This is under King David and King Solomon. And then this comes to our period where we have Assyria. And you see how Assyria almost wipes out. It's only Judah that survives in that whole area. Then the Babylonians and the Persians. And we'll let it, I'll actually we'll let it run to the end because you'll see how it comes. Israel is always at the center of things. There you have the Macedonians, the Greeks. And then, of course, the time of Christ, the Romans, who conquer everywhere except Scotland and Ireland. <laughs> Byzantine Empire, sorry I had to say that. This is now into the time of Mohammed and the various Islamic conquests in different ways, the Caliphate in particular, where, which almost overran the whole of Europe. Again, in the providence of God, was presented doing so, the Seljuk Empire of the Persians. The Crusaders, kingdoms then taking control of Israel, 14th century, then Saladin's empire, and then the Mongols who, again, almost overran the whole world, but some people see that in biblical prophecy as well. Then the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, again, Islamic. And then into the 20th century, uh, late 19th, 20th century, European colonialism. And this is where the border states are all established because these were all um, people, tribes rather than nation states. The astonishing state of Israel coming back in 1948. 
and then Israel as it is basically currently is today. So, I mean, it's just such an important part of the world. We'll go back to the main thing, but you, you remember that clip, the slide there where Assyria takes over the whole lot, except Judah. This is a mega power. This is as though uh, America conquered Europe and all that's left is Scotland. That's it. Well, I want us to look at um, where, I want to go back, can we go back to Scotland? Yeah. Let's think about this in terms of Scotland, where we are. Let me just say something about Jeremiah, by the way, first of all. There's real depth in, in Jeremiah. There's emotion, there's pathos, there's heartache. Those he loved hated him. He called for repentance to a people who were incapable of it. He wrestled with God. He was lonely. He despaired. He got frustrated. He got angry. He was hostile. He misunderstood. He felt helpless. And yet in this book, this book more than any book in the, New, in the Old Testament speaks of the new covenant and Jesus coming and changing everything. Now, I say about Scotland, I'm not saying that Scotland is Israel. I remember what we said at the beginning about the Bible being written in a particular context. But I do think that there are similarities between Israel's Judah's situation two and a half thousand years ago and Scotland's situation today. Jeremiah was called to call the people of Judah to observe God's law when they're on the brink of national and spiritual catastrophe. We're in the same situation. We have a religious apostasy that's been followed by social and moral decay. Now, this year is the 450th anniversary of the Reformation. And there are many, many glorious chapters in the history of Scotland as the gospel worked upon Scotland in quite astonishing ways. Ways that you and I really, we, I, th I think we have so little grasp of it. The first time I studied this was at uh, Edinburgh University. And I was just astounded. For example, one small thing. Well, it's not small. It wasn't small to the people who were involved. Some of you will know that in the 1840s, there was a potato famine in Ireland. One million Irish people died from that famine. What you may not know is that the same potato famine existed in the west of Scotland. And for those of you who are from the west of Scotland, and particularly from the islands, you live off tatties. And they did. And the same thing would have happened. Hundreds of thousands would have died. But the church... The Free Church, especially, which had just, remember, in 1843 started and was building manses and schools and everything else, the Free Church petitioned the government, argued with the government, but didn't just wait. They bought a ship, and they went to Russia, to the Crimea, and brought grain back. And it's, and it's, an, it's, an, it's an astonishing story that we had no Irish potato famine in Scotland because of the work of what the church did. Now, there are lots and lots of ways that we can look at how the, the gospel progressed in Scotland, the missionary movement, the disruption, the covenanters, and so on. This city, Dundee, believe it or not, was known as the Geneva of the North, not because we're as beautiful as Switzerland. We are more beautiful than Switzerland, uh, or as cultured and so on. We were known as the Geneva of the North because there was so much reformed evangelical Christianity here. Interestingly, when you read histories of Dundee today, written today, people ignore that almost completely. I came across something a few years ago when I read the census, the 1851 census, which found that 51% of the population in Dundee attended the Free Church, which had just been formed eight years previously. And a majority of the rest attended other evangelical churches, 
including where St. Paul's Cathedral is just now. And I'll say this, and I'll get in trouble for saying this, but it's, uh, that church has gone down to a handful of people because they haven't preached the gospel in there for many, many, many years. But that church at one point had thousands of people in it, many of them people from Northern Ireland who came because they were being persecuted by the Catholic Church. It was a working class church. That huge cathedral was built by some of the poorest people in Dundee. And it's, 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 again, it's an astonishing story. Church up the road there, McShane Memorial, with a for sale sign on it, is now owned by a Muslim businessman. It was opened as a church extension of this church. It was opened in 1870 by a man called Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Within one century, the church had declined so much that both these buildings were being sold. Now, I would be prepared to argue this, that it's very simplistic and it's more complicated than this, but on the whole, the reason that this has happened is largely because the church has abandoned the word of God. Like Judah in Jeremiah's day, we don't, sometimes don't even know that it exists. You, you say that's an exaggeration? I put on the radio this morning, I listened to two services, one from Scotland, one from England, and both of them, you might as well have taken the Bible and thrown it in the bin. Completely pointless, completely wet, completely insipid, completely useless. How do you expect non-Christians to believe the gospel if the church doesn't teach the gospel? If the church deals in pious platitudes and uh, nonsense? And that just keeps coming up again and again and again. We, like Judah, have compromised, we've withdrawn, we've given up, we've become theological liberals, or in reaction, we've become legalists, hiding away. We have nice churches and nice people, but precious little backbone, precious little belief, precious little commitment. And God is calling us, I believe, like Jeremiah, to proclaim the word of God to the church and to the people of Scotland. There is nothing else that will change this culture and will change this society. You can take all your programs and all your good works and all the other things that you would look at in terms of worship and different things and you'd say, yes, we should do this and we should do this and we should do this. And that is correct. But without the word of God, it's just vacuous and empty because proclaiming the Bible is proclaiming Christ. 8% of people attend any church in Dundee. And that, I mean any church. So you are talking about, let's say there's 150,000 people in this city. I reckon that you are talking about 140,000 plus who don't even know what the gospel is. They have no idea what the gospel is. The question I heard most from just talking to people even who were coming to the sale apart from what's the price of this and what's the price of that don't know ask Edith that was my answer with that one but if I got into any deeper conversation the question I would get most is what's this all about what's it about see they can understand the church as a concert hall they can understand the church as a social club they can understand the church as part of the community and all that stuff but they have no idea of the the tremendous riches that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ now, that's the situation we are in. Um, I have so much empathy with Jeremiah in this because I'm, um, it's just, it was quite a bizarre week. Every single day this week, except I think Friday, but I haven't checked on Friday, I got a letter from somebody 
basically saying, each one more or less saying, don't be a Jeremiah. Either you're a heretic or you're miserable or uh, lots of stuff like that. Jeremiah was accused of being gloomy and pessimistic and miserable. His book is not gloomy, it is not pessimistic, and it is not miserable because he's saying in the middle of an apostate culture, God still cares, God's still speaking, and God is going to send someone to help with this. And I think that we are saying to people, we have a message which is God still cares, God is still speaking, and God has sent someone. So, that's an introduction. Let me go briefly through this, this first chapter. Uh, I like alliteration, so these all begin with a letter P. Jeremiah's predestination. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So much argument about predestination. Look, it's in the Bible. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Jeremiah is being told, you're a young guy. You are going to have to go to do this. The only way you're going to be able to stand in doing this is that you know that I have called you. You know that I have chosen you. Jesus says exactly the same to the disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I chose you to go and bear fruit. Romans 8.29, for those God foreknew, he also be predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Jeremiah had to be convinced that he had been called from the womb by God into that situation at that time, because otherwise he would never have done it. Because he would have thought, this is nuts. I can't do this. I can't. This is not. Do you know, one of the reasons we don't believe in predestination in the church in Scotland anymore is because we think we can do it. We think it's there. No, we can't. We are utterly useless. And unless God has called us, and unless God has chosen us, then we can't do it. But if God has done that, and you've got to ask that question, if God has done that, then it changes absolutely everything. It's God's time. When the time had fully come, God sent his son. Now, you can argue about the philosophical and the wider implications of predestination, and if you want to, we will, but not this morning. I'm concerned about the pastoral implications. This is God saying to you, you, you are here, and you are discouraged, and you are depressed, and you are overwhelmed, and you, you know that you have a task before you that is way, way, way far too big for you. And this is God saying to you, I made you, I knew you, I'm the potter. Jeremiah 18 will talk of that imagery of the potter. Psalm 139, beautiful words. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. None of the circumstances in your lives are accidents. They are all part of God's shaping hand. Harrison says this, the thought that his very existence was a conscious part of divine purpose and not an incidental biological occurrence must have given him a special sense of destiny. 
I heard two parents once talking about one of their children. They said, oh, she was an accident. The other two were planned, but she was an accident. I just thought, I hope that poor child never, ever hears those words. I'm an accident. But you know, that's what people in the world believe. They believe they're an accident. They believe there's no purpose. They believe it just happened. You're not an accident. You're not an accident. God has called you. It's, 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 it's the most incredible thing. It's either the most insanely arrogant thing, or it's the most wonderful thing to believe that I am not an accident. Jeremiah, I've always known you, says God. And the response of Jeremiah is, no, no, that can't be right. No, the response of Jeremiah should be our response of me. It just should simply be, wow. Wow. Wonder. Just grateful acceptance. God says, I know you. Secondly, verses 6 to 7, Jeremiah protests. Of course he's going to protest. I'm just a child. I'm, I'm not eloquent. He's timid. The task is too great. He's too weak. He's too sensitive. Jeremiah is actually a whole lot more sensitive and, and gentle than we might imagine. He doesn't like controversy. He doesn't like strife. And so he says, I can't. I can't do it. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, the harvest is great. The workers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would throw out, that he would thrust out people into the harvest field. God has to thrust out workers into his harvest field. Jeremiah, you see, is asking the wrong question. He shouldn't be saying, who am I? He should be saying, what do you want me to do? You and I might be inclined to say, Lord, but who am I that you ask us to do this? You say we've got a word to communicate to people, but who are we? God says, I knew you. I knew you. We should be asking, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Because it's not about us and who we are. It's about God and who he is. Alexander Stewart, it is the worker who is most conscious of his own unfitness for the task that is also most dependent on the power of God for success. His weakness is a channel through which the divine energy flows and through which, accordingly, the divine name is glorified. I keep thinking, I can do it. I can do this. We can do this. We can do this. It's a natural inclination. When you get to a point where your heart is broken, where your eyes are weak, where your mind is confused, where your spirit is discouraged because you recognize, I can't do this, I can't do this, you are beginning to understand the work that God has called you to because you must get to a position where you let go of yourself and you hand the whole lot over to God because it's his anyway. Any protest that you or I have, no, we can't do this. Please leave us alone in our nice little comfortable churches. Don't ask us to do this. Don't ask us to go out. We pray that God would revive. We like hearing about missionaries and way, way across in the other parts of the world. We like the idea of going on mission trips somewhere. You know, give me two weeks in Africa and then I'll come back and forget all about it. We like that. We like the idea of reading history and going back into history and saying, wasn't it wonderful what the covenanters did in Scotland? And God says, no, I called you to this place at this time for this purpose. And we should be responding, what do you want me to do? Because Jeremiah has promised God's power as well. Verse 8, God says, don't be afraid. I am God. I am with you. I have given you my words. I have appointed you. 
God touches him. Isaiah 6, this is very similar to Isaiah's call. Woe is me, says Isaiah, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I say, I wish that would happen to me. I wish God would come to me. I wish God would speak to me. I wish God would touch my lips. I wish I would know that presence of God. But it does. And it is. What do you think is happening just now? God is speaking to you. Putting his arm around you. Calling you. Let me put it this way. God doesn't hold us at arm's length and tell us to go and do something and then with a reward, he will give us a, as a reward, he'll give us a hug. God comes and he hugs us and he says, get on with it. Do what I am calling you to do. Oh, but I need to get myself sorted out or I need to get this. No, 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 no. You don't need to get yourself sorted out. God has called you. God is, is calling you. If you're not a Christian, he's calling you to follow him. And if you are a Christian, he's calling you to follow him. He will empower you. Don't wait until you are ready. Then, Jeremiah's purpose, verse 10. What was to happen to him? He was appointed. The idea of was given. See, when we talk about God choosing people, we're not saying, wow, God has chosen me and not you people. It's not like God, a kind of playground thing, you know, the cross and blackness primary, the kids in the playground choosing people for a game. I pick him, him, and him, but you're not picked. That's not what's happening. It's not what's happening at all. What's happening is this, is that God is choosing us so that we can go and serve. God's choosing us so that we get the privilege of doing the dishes. You, you don't, maybe you don't like that. You like the idea of choice being, I'm choosing you so that I can marry you, or I'm choosing you so that you can play on my team. But I'm choosing you so that you can do the dishes. I'm choosing you so that you can get your hands dirty. I'm choosing you so that you can communicate my word. That's more difficult. Jeremiah is called to be a prophet, a communicator of God's message, to tell God's word. He's not called to be a perceptive social commentator. Don't know how it happened, but he was called to be a prophet. And now all the Lord's people are called to be prophets. And in this way, he's called to destruct, to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And he's told to construct, building the kingdom of God. You know this, every revolution in this world destroys, but only Christ builds from the destruction. You go to the Russian Revolution of 1917, and there was so much that needed to be destroyed then. But it just led to something a whole lot worse. Jesus Christ builds from the destruction. Now, God has to root out and to weed and to plow before we can grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I would love it if people came into this church, they heard God's word, they went, wow, that's great, I accept it, I become a Christian. The whole of the city hears and says, yeah, that's fantastic, we want to become Christians. But in reality, what will happen is, as God's word is spoken, people will hate it. And they will hate those who say it. Why? Because it goes right to the very heart of our inmost being. It is the most uncomfortable thing in the world to have God challenge your inmost being and your very preconceptions. He's appointed 
Jeremiah not just to Israel, but as a prophet to the nations, even though he never left Israel, because Israel was to be a blessing to the whole nations. And I want to say this, that your purpose, my purpose, is that God has appointed us, he's called us, called us as Christians, as ministers, as elders, as deacons, as, as members as, in this church, for this time, for this purpose, to root out, to expose, to face up to the sin and the desperate condition we are in, and we are to build up the kingdom of God by proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. It's his church, not ours, and we only build it up by proclaiming and living the glory, love, and beauty of Jesus, the word of God. Now, you'll notice Jeremiah is called to teach the word, and immediately, and this happens throughout the book, he's given images and visions. We are going to communicate God's word, and there'll be all kinds of pictures involved. He's given two. There's one, the almond tree. It's a play on words in the Hebrew. There's a very slight difference between saked and soked, just one Hebrew vowel. The almond tree was the first tree that would bud in the spring. The word for almond tree is so close to the word for watchful. And what's being told here, Jeremiah is being told, you're going to proclaim this word, you are going to go through winter, but there will be spring. And it's a double meaning. He says, I am watching over you. I am watching over you to make sure that my word is fulfilled. Second image is that of the boiling pot. Not the wee pot that you have on your, your cooker, but one of these massive pots that you, well, say you have, you probably wouldn't have outside. A massive pot that is filled up with water. Now, if you've got a pan on your cooker that's got a little bit of boiling water in it and you tip it over and it spills on you, you get your hand burnt. But what is being warned here is that there is something being stored up for Israel in the north. And it was going to come out of Assyria and the pot was going to tip. And God's people were going to really, really suffer because of it. Ashur Banipal, his name is, the king of Assyria, died in the year of Jeremiah's call and the empire was in chaos. God's people, instead of turning to God, turned to idolatry. They were conformed to this world. And Jeremiah was told, this is what's going to happen. Picture of judgment and a picture of redemption. Let me finish with Jeremiah's promise, verses 17 to 19. Jeremiah is told that he has to say what God has commanded. Not what he wants to say or what the people want to hear. I read so much Christian stuff, which is all about how do we get people to like us? How do we get people into the church? Well, we've got to tell them what they want to hear. No. We've got to tell them what we're interested in. No. What I want to say is irrelevant. What does God want to say? What is God saying? It's not my or your emotions, my or your desires, my or your moods, my or your wisdom. It's not the enlightenment of society. It's God's word. And that does liberate you. Calvin says this, we may hence perceive that teachers cannot firmly execute their office except they have the majesty of God before their eyes so that in comparison with him they, they may disregard whatever splendor, pomp, or power there may be in men. 
Jeremiah is told, get ready, stand fast. The people of the land are coming to get you. And by that, it's understood that he means the landowners. They're not going to like what you're going to say. They're going to go against you. I don't understand this. Why do Christians seek to cultivate rulers and the rich and the powerful and the influential? Because we think, okay, if we do that, then if, you know, this, you know, if Wayne Rooney became a Christian, imagine his tithe. You know, it'd be great for the church. Or if um, David Cameron became a Christian, then wouldn't it change, you know, turn the country upside down and so on? No, I don't think so. I really don't think so. It's not many rich, not many powerful, not many influential. Jeremiah is told, you go and take them on. You take them on. You are going to be a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze statue. You, this young lad, you are going to go into Jerusalem and you are going to go and take them on and you will survive 40 years. More than that. It's a great assurance. Why? Verse 19, an assurance for us too. They will fight against you but will not overcome you for I am with you and will rescue you. What Jeremiah has to overcome is his own personal defects. We have to do that too. Christ's atonement saves us from self as well as from sin. Galatians 2.20. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ lives in me. We are to be the called, the chosen, and the faithful of Revelation 17.14. We are to be those people of whom it is said by God, he is not ashamed to be called our God, Hebrews 11, 16. You see, it calls for guts. It calls for courage. It calls for faithfulness. It calls for humility. It calls for giving up on ourselves and all our own ideas and what we think, how this might work and that might work. And just saying, yes, Lord, I will say your word. What's your purpose? What's your calling? Have you reached the point in your life where you're able to say, this is why I was made. This is why I am here. This is my purpose. God is calling. The question is whether we are listening. God calls all men everywhere to repent. And Jesus calls everyone, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Repentance is to turn from our sin and to turn towards God. I think God is calling Scotland to repent and Dundee to repent and St. Peter's to repent and myself to repent and the elders to repent and the members to repent and those of you who are not yet Christians to repent. I think Jesus weeps over Scotland and weeps over Dundee and weeps over this church. We're like Laodicea. He stands at the door and he knocks and he asks to come in. He asks us to follow him. The question is, will we? Will we follow Jesus Christ or will we play at being religious?